by and large, government is going to pick up the tab for your health and your aged care. Mm-hmm. So rather than saving everything you've got at the age of 70 for a rainy day, uh, enjoy the sunshine uh, because when it starts raining, in fact, government will be paying for the umbrella, but you're not going to be able to enjoy the sunshine anymore. Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. Welcome to the Grattan Podcast Channel. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan Institute, and today we're discussing retirement incomes. It's something of a national sport in Australia to worry about retirement incomes. Will I have enough money to retire on? What if I live to 100? Surely I'll run out of money. Is the pension big enough? Have I got enough super? We've all thought about these sorts of questions, and some of us might have asked them with a little more urgency as we get a little older. It's a complex and confusing area of public policy, but now help is on hand because my two guests today can shed a lot of light on these questions and more. I'm joined firstly by the CEO of Grattan Institute, John Daly. John, welcome. Thank you. And I'm also joined by Grattan Policy Fellow, Brendan Coates. Brendan, welcome to you. Thanks, Paul. John and Brendan have just published an important new report on retirement incomes a report with some surprising findings. John, can I ask you first, what have you found about the state of retirement incomes for retirees today? The first thing that we found is that the people least worried about having enough money in retirement in Australian society are people who retired. Really? So uh, typically, they're more likely than people who are still working to say, "I think I've got a, I'm going to have a financially comfortable retirement." Mm-hmm. So they're, of course, the people living the reality. Uh, and so when we look at that reality, one of the things we did in that report um, was to look at people who are 65 to 84 years old today, and ask, "What's their income look like relative to when they were?" 45 to 64, by definition, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the short answer is that typically they've got incomes that are pretty close to their incomes in real terms uh, when they were working. Uh, That's true up and down the income distribution. And therefore, in terms of the money they've got that's, if you like, disposable, Mm -hmm. what living standard can they support? The short answer is that most of them are probably enjoying, uh, certainly have enough money to enjoy a living standard in retirement higher than they had when they were working. Um, Now, and the reason, of course, that the amount of money you need is different is that once you're retired, you're no longer paying off the mortgage, you're no longer paying for the children, um, you're no longer paying work expenses, there's a bunch of things that you can do for yourself. And so typically... Uh, we say, and the OECD says, and lots of people have worked in this space, if you've got an income in retirement that's about 70% of your income while you're working, you're able to live a similar standard of living. And what we found was that most retirees today are well above that benchmark. But, John, what about those of us who are still working, uh, who might, shall I put this nicely, be getting closer to retirement are we middle-aged workers going to have enough? Well, are you middle-aged workers? I like to think I'm still young, Paul. Um, are you middle-aged workers going to have enough? Uh, that, of course, we can't look at 
the reality. We have to build a model. Sure. Uh, so we built a model called GRIP, the Grattan Retirement Incomes Projector, that basically looks at the existing patterns of distribution uh, of income across the community, looks at how people move in, in and out of um, uh, higher and lower income bands, mm-hmm. uh, looks at how much they'll save in super, looks at um, what they'll um, save elsewhere, um, looks at when they might retire and so on, and then looks at, well, how much income will they have available to them when they're in retirement. And here again, we found that pretty much across the income distribution, people are likely to be above that 70% benchmark and therefore are likely to have um, uh, income in retirement that will enable them to support a living standard in retirement at least as good as the living standard that they had while they were working. What about the the very young, John? I believe there may be some people in the workforce who are even younger than us. What about people who are just starting out? Are they going to have enough? Uh, so the short answer is it's the same story. Right. Uh, now, that, that group, on the one hand, uh, will have been paying more super for longer, so that's an advantage. And on the other hand, um, has not got the big free kick in asset values uh, that 40 and 50-year-olds have had. People who are 40 or 50 have typically owned assets 10, 15 years ago, both their own homes and assets in super. As interest rates fell, there was a big jump in the value of their assets. And so that 40 to 50-year-old generation has got that big free kick. Mm-hmm. Now, the 30-year-olds, we certainly don't model that kind of free kick. We don't think that you can count on it. Um, but of course, they'll be paying super for longer uh, and or more super for longer. Uh, and consequently, uh, we find that they'll wind up with retirement incomes again, sufficient to re- support a standard of living in retirement, at least as good as they had while they were working. And that's true up and down the income distribution. Okay, Brendan, John's painted a pretty rosy picture there, uh, but he talked about this 70% replacement rate, this 70% benchmark. Let me just put this to you. If I'm on a salary, say, let's use a round figure of $100,000, surely isn't it logical and understandable that I want $100,000 a year of income when I'm retired? Well, there are really quite different expenses between your when you're working and when you're retired. And I think it's worth pointing out, first of all, that when we're talking about a replacement rate, it's a replacement rate of your post-tax income. So you mm-hmm. might be on a salary of $100,000, but you might be paying $25,000 a year in tax. So sure. you're actually only earning $75,000. Sure. And then you need roughly 70% of that number in order to be um, comfortable in retirement. So you need a number of a bit over $50,000 in retirement. And that's one of the reasons I think that, you know, when people think about their retirement income, they go, oh, geez, that's not that much money mm. to live on. I'm earning... 70, 80, 100, $150,000 today. But the reality is you're spending a lot of money on tax, um, you know, in order to fund the goods and services that government provides that, you know, we all rely on. And taking that away means that you, the money actually goes a lot further. Yeah, but Brendan, as I get older, I'm going to be paying a lot more for my health care, surely. Well, you know, you might be thinking that, Paul, but our research tends to I find am. the opposite. So so the one of the big surprises in this um, in this work, which I think is the first time anyone's really done this in Australia, is we've actually looked at what happens to retirees spending over time right. as they get older. So, you know, you say you're, you're on a post-tax income of $100,000, mm-hmm. then, you know, you retire, so we say you need $70,000. That would be a very high income. Very few people in Australia have a post-tax income of more than hundred grand. Mm. Um, 
that number would be then what happens essentially is your spending starts to fall through your retirement years um, so that you're even after adjusting for inflation, you're actually spending less. So your spending tends to fall by, you know, it's about one percentage point a year. Right. Right. Um, and it really accelerates after the age of 75. So in the first 10 to 15 years of retirement, you tend to, you know, you do a lot of travel. If you're well off, you'll do international travel. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you might be taking a caravan around Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're still eating out quite a bit. You're still doing lots of things like whether it's the bowls club or hiking or, or any other sort of recreation. And then as you get older, that spending starts to fall away. And what we've found is that spending falls away for both food uh, for transport, falls mm-hmm. away really heavily mm-hmm. from about the age of 70. Uh, recreation goes down. Housing expenses go up, but that's really council rates. So the house value of your house has gone up and therefore you're spending more in taxes on mm-hmm. council rates. Mm-hmm. And then if you're renting, that's gone up too. And one of the stories that we'll talk about is that for renters, life may not be quite as comfortable as what mm-hmm. it is for homeowners. Your medical expenses go up a little bit, but the expectation that you had before, Paul, is that you're going to spend most of your money on, a lot of your money on healthcare. Mm. But the reality is that government actually steps in and f- and um, pays most of that bill. So the average retiree aged 80 to 84 today is spending about $2,000 a year on healthcare. Okay, so John, this is overwhelmingly a good news story and yet we worry why why is there this disparity between the level of public anxiety and the facts as you and brendan have outlined them well about six months ago i had to give a speech on uh this and i came across that question i thought well let me let me just find out what is out there telling people that um they won't have enough money in retirement. What did you discover? Well, it took me all of half an hour with Google and I found about 10 articles within about half an hour, uh, all saying you will not have enough money in retirement, pretty much all of which were sourced from the financial services industry. Uh, Now for this report, we had a little bit more than half an hour to do that. (laughs) Uh, So we found an even longer footnote Uh, of all of the people, well, in fact, I'm sure we have not found anything like all of the people who have said you will not have enough money in retirement. Mm. But pretty relentlessly, you will get messages in the media, uh, usually sourced from uh, financial services firms or people who are paid by them, saying you are not going to have enough money in retirement. Uh, And then, of course, what we did was actually work out, well, on what basis are people saying this? Right. And what we discovered was uh, they were saying this on the basis of two things. The first is a standard sometimes known as the ASFA Comfortable Standard because it was devised by ASFA. ASFA being? The Association of Super Funds of Australia. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, they devised this standard to work out what was it that the top 20%, roughly speaking, of Australians in retirement spent their money on. Right. So having devised a standard for the top 20%, they then said that we should aspire for at least half of the country to have that standard of living in retirement. Now, for fairly obvious reasons, it's quite difficult for the top 50% of Australians to have the same living standard as the top 20% of Australians. (laughs) Uh, So that's kind of problem number one. Mm -hmm. Um, It was originally labelled a comfortably affluent standard of living, and that got shortened I'll leave you to decide why, mm-hmm. um, uh, to a comfortable standard. Of course, the problem is that it implies that if you don't have that living standard, the top 20%, that you are therefore uncomfortable 
in retirement. Mm. Mm. Uh, so that's problem number one. The second problem is that a lot of the work in this space, whether it applies the as for comfortable standard or whether it applies some other standard, assumes that your income in retirement should keep pace with the living standards of the rest of the population. Yeah. Now, what, and the way that that's expressed is that it's deflated by wages. Mm-hmm. Now, that all sounds very innocent. Indeed, it does. And very reasonable. Of course, my living standards in retirement, I want to keep up with the rest of the community. But mm. actually, by and large, that's not what people are after. I accept that my children are probably going to live a better standard of living than I do. I certainly hope so. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time working on policy (laughs) to ensure that that happens uh, here at Grattan. And uh, so I'm, in retirement, not actually expecting to keep up living standards-wise with my children. I am expecting to keep up with the living standards of my friends at the Bowls Club or Mm -hmm. the Bridge Club or... Uh, in my case, the Cryptic Crosswords Club, um, I am expecting to keep up in that way. And, of course, their incomes or and the amount that they spend probably only going up with inflation. In fact, as Brendan has been pointing out, in reality, almost certainly their, their spending will gradually be falling mm-hmm, mm-hmm. through their retirement. And, of course, this is also consistent if you look at how defined benefit schemes work, where um, unfortunately, there's not very many of those left because mm. uh, they're so expensive. But um, the way that they used to work is they said, all right, we'll, we'll pay you out a certain percentage of your final income, essentially for the whole of your retirement. Um, they typically went up by inflation. So they took how much they mm-hmm. had to pay you on the first day of your retirement, and that was pegged to inflation. Uh, and it went up as you got older. Um, but in effect, it meant you could simply afford whatever it was you could afford the Mm. day you retired. Mm. Now, that very innocent-sounding difference between increasing in line with the rest of the community and simply increasing in line with inflation Mm -hmm. is a really big deal over time. Uh, It implies that a 90-year-old will be spending about 25% more than a 67-year-old, or sorry, a person... The person age 90 will yes. be spending about 25% more than they spent when they were 67. Right. It's just not true. Right. We know that in practice, 90-year-olds tend to spend not 25% more than when they were 67, but quite a lot less, in the order yep. of about 15% less. Yep. So if you're going to model retirement incomes and, and talk about, well, how much do people need, you shouldn't be assuming that they need this big increase in incomes as they get older and older. You should be assuming that... Probably, if you really want to be realistic, you'd assume that their spending would fall a bit. What we've assumed in the Grattan work is that their spending will stay the same in real terms. And one of the things that we've done that's a bit different in this work is run the sensitivity analysis to figure out which of all of the assumptions that we've had to make in modelling, in the modelling, are really important and which of them, you know, frankly don't change the answer very much. And there's a lot of them. A lot of them that you might think would change the answer a lot that don't matter. And then there's one in particular that changes the answers really drastically. And that's, do I um, assume that people's um, spending and retirement is going to go up by wages or just stay the same in real terms? Talk to me about that, Brendan. The the Grattan modelling, as John says, is notably different to other work in this area. Tell me about the Grattan model and tell me why it's different. So the Grattan model or the Grattan Retirement Income Projector, what it does is basically take your income as you starting, if we take the 30-year-old version of the model, which is, I think, the model for me, whereas the 50-year-old version is the model for, well. Go on, Brendan. 
<laughs> um, that model, that 30-year-old model, basically st- takes you starting work at age 30. It takes the distribution of incomes that we've seen across the taxation file, mm-hmm. it, um, which includes both full and part-time workers. I think that's really important. So we're capturing people working part-time um, and capturing the actual distribution of earnings. You then project forward what someone's going to earn over the course of their life from age 30 to age 67. Now, that's 37 years. It is in the model projected as 37 years of continuous work. But in practice, most, most people start working about the age of 22, 23. So sure. we're implicitly allowing for some career breaks there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One thing that we do that's really different to everyone else is where they assume that people can move up and down the income distribution over their life. So they might start working part-time, switch up to full-time. Up and down. Exactly. So that has the effect, essentially, of assuming that people at the very top don't earn quite as high income because they come down at some point and people at the bottom earn higher income as they move from working part-time to full-time. Mm-hmm. So to give you an example, someone at the 10th percentile of our distribution, so in the, the lowest 10% of workers, has an income on average over their, their working life that's roughly equivalent to working the minimum wage three days a week. The 20th percentile is someone who works at the minimum wage full-time. Or you can think of it as the 10th percentile is someone who works at the full-time minimum wage but only works for 20 out of 37 Mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. We then take that, we take their compulsory super contributions that they make, we some voluntary super contributions that they make, particularly if they're wealthier, um, which is what we see in the taxation statistics. And then we also give them some non-super savings that we know that most people at the wealthier end of the distribution tend to have at retirement. And so at age 67, you have this pot of money, and then you essentially draw that down leaving aside about 10% of it as a bequest or as insurance against, you know, some unexpected health cost, the thing yep. you were worried about before, Paul, um, or aged care costs. And essentially by 92, which is um, average life expectancy for that group going forward, they'll have they'll have exhausted that money apart from that 10%. But what assumptions are you making about voluntary super contributions? Because a lot of people can't afford that or think they can't. Yeah, so we're, what we're capturing is the contributions that we see people make. Right. Um, and, you know, this has been one issue of pushback from, from particularly parts of the, the super lobby about the, the modelling itself. And what we show in some work that we actually published today on Inside Story um, that you can see on our website is that mm-hmm. we show that that makes very little difference. So the difference between assuming the, the voluntary super contributions that we do and taking them out completely changes the replacement rate from 91% to 88% for the median earner. So, John, Brendan mentions the super lobby. Now, the superannuation industry basically says that you've got this wrong. Industry Super Australia says Grattan's modelling assumptions are unrealistic and unrepresentative of most Australian workers. And ASFA, that you've mentioned earlier, says the report's an unprecedented attack on the retirement aspirations of ordinary Australians. What what do you say to that? Well, let's deal first with the modelling. We've we've worked as hard as we can to get a model that's as close as it can be uh, to real life. The reality is it's a model. It's not real life. Sure. Um, but it's as close as it can be. As Brendan said, we're looking at the actual distribution of earnings um, uh, as recorded in the tax file, um, uh, which is a basically a random sample of all tax returns that are made. Mm-hmm. Um, we are looking at the amount that's actually being contributed um, because if you make either voluntary uh, pre-tax or post-tax contributions to super, that's re- also recorded in that tax file data. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which I hasten to add is anonymous. Um, <laughs> uh, so we're capturing all of those things. Uh, we make some uh, assumptions, which if you like are compensating assumptions. So we don't assume that you start working until... 30, we do assume that you move up and down the income mm-hmm. distribution and we use the actual transitions that we can see of people of different age and different levels of income uh, in the um, so-called HILDA survey, which tracks individuals and asks them sort of every year how much income they've got. So we can see w- what are the typical transitions of people up and down the income tra- distribution. So we've certainly done our level best to make it a model that's as realistic as possible. And one of the things that's actually quite distinctive about this model is we have actually published as part of the report a very detailed uh, description of how the model is working, what are the assumptions that we make. Uh, I would suggest by and large a great deal more detailed than many of the models that have been um, previously used. And we also provide a series of graphs that Uh, work through, well, what are the sensitivities of that model? If you change some of those assumptions, because inevitably they're assumptions, so minds can reasonably differ, Mm -hmm. how much difference does that make? And that's what enables us to be very confident to say, you know, most of those assumptions, look, we've done the very best we can. We've given you a rationale for why we think it's the right one. Uh, But we can also show you that it probably doesn't make a lot of difference most of the time, with the exception of this big assumption around do wages, uh, sorry, do incomes in retirement Mm. typically grow at the same rate as wages or inflation? And I think it's worth pointing out as well that a lot of the other models that are in this space, you know, haven't gone and looked at what spending actually looks like Mm -hmm. as people get older. Um, They've instead just assumed it should go up with wages, which means, as John said, that someone at age 90 needs to be spending 25% Hmm. more. Um, And they've often then combined that with using the Ask for Comfortable standard. Yep. Um, So that means that the Ask for Comfortable standard is worth $60,000 for a couple now at age 65. That implies that that couple is going to be spending something like $75,000 even after adjusting for inflation, you know, 20 years down the track. Now, that's an extra two international trips a year that they would be able to do. We know that government covers most of your health and aged care costs. Yep. So what are you spending the money on? And what we see, in fact, is that people are not spending the money, even when they have lower incomes than that today. Instead, most retirees tend to either be net savers or to draw down very um, lightly on their, their retirement savings through their lives. So one study that was done for um, the Department of Social Security found that the average retiree or average pensioner eight years into the survey still had 90% of their wealth from the start. And these are pensioners. So these are right. obviously taking out the top 20%. Right. So can, can we go back, Paul? So you asked a question about um, what have we assumed and why have people criticised it? So mm. we talked about that. The other question that was asked was, you know, uh, is this an attack on the aspirations of Australians for retirement? Mm. Well, look, it's definitely an attack on the aspirations of the superannuation industry for how much money Australians should be saving. Uh, And people can draw their own conclusions about why the superannuation industry might be very keen on people saving um, any amount more um, Mm -hmm. for their retirement. Um, In fact, what we've done is look at not what does the super industry think that their aspirations should be. Instead, what we've asked is... How much do people really have? What is it that people have at the moment in retirement? And how happy are they about that? Mm. And the short answer is, as we said right up at the beginning, is that by and large, typical retirees today are 
more happy with their Ooh. financial circumstances than pretty much any other group in Australian society. And we've also thought about this as a trade-off. So, sure, you can have more money in retirement. You can live like a king in retirement, but only if you live like a pauper beforehand. Right, right. Uh, and so, yes, you can have more money in retirement if you save more, and therefore, by definition, you have less money to spend whilst you're working. And so um, the way that we've tried to um, look at this in a way that's a little bit more objective is to say, really, the aspiration that most people have is for a standard of living in retirement commensurable with their standard of living before they retire. Mm. Uh, and so that's what we've taken as the kind of core measure in the report. We're not Robinson Crusoe on this. Those That kind of replacement rate concept is uh, very prevalent in a lot of the literature. Indeed. Um, and so we've, um, look, we have to some extent assumed that that's the uh, standard of living that most Australians are aiming for, and we think that that's a pretty good assumption. Mm. And here's another point, though. From a policy perspective, there is no reason to assume that people will prefer a higher living standard in retirement than before they, whilst they're working. What do you and mean by that, a policy well, perspective? Well, in the sense of should we as government force people to right. have a higher living standard while they're retired than when they're working? And I would have thought the answer to that is no. There's no reason why governments should force that on you. If you want to make that choice, you know, knock yourself out. Um, but particularly given that the super guarantee is, by definition, a, a government-mandated scheme that requires you to put mm. money into superannuation, mm. it does seem reasonable to us that the aim of the system from a policy perspective should be to go to that replacement rate, but no more. I want to get to the super guarantee in a moment, John, but Brendan, I want to ask about one other thing. We're hearing a lot of overwhelming good news out of this report. But you have identified one group of Australians for whom the system is not working. That's right. So the, the one group where the life doesn't look like it's going to be so good is renters. So we know that those that are in retirement and renting today tend to have much higher rates of financial stress than those that are homeowners. Sure. You know, this is measured on things like can you pay your electricity bill? Have you skipped a meal because of cost? This sort of stuff. And that group is likely to grow quite substantially over the next couple of decades. So, Why? Well, so home ownership rates are falling quite sharply amongst oh, the young and the poor. That's something we talked about in our last report on housing affordability. And what we've done this time around is take those numbers and use them to project forward what's going to happen to the share of retirees that own their own homes in future. Mm -hmm. And it's going to fall from, you know, based on the number of people rather than households, um, it's going to fall from about 76% today to 57% in 40 years' time. Mm. And I think in some ways, we're assuming no further decline in home ownership from here. And if that happens, then those numbers may well be lower. So you're probably looking at about one in two retirees will own their home in future. Mm. Now, mm. that group is going to struggle because, as John mentioned before, the 70% replacement rate that you're aiming for is essentially set at that level because you tend to spend about 25% of your income on housing while you're working and only about 5% of income on housing when you're retired. Mm. Combine that with the other things that drop down when you retire compared to when you're working, and that's where you get the 70% from. And if you're having to spend an extra 30% of your income on rent, on rent, then that life's going to look pretty tough for you. And we know that home ownership is falling fastest amongst the young and the poor. So whereas 50% of people might own their own home in general, home ownership rates amongst the bottom 20% will be much lower. Okay, so you have a specific policy recommendation 
for poorer Australians in retirement? Absolutely. So the biggest thing, the most important thing that we need to do in our retirement income system from a policy perspective is to boost rent assistance by 40% right now. 40%. That's correct. So rent assistance has fallen compared to the value of rents paid by low-income earners by about that level over the last two decades. So lifting it by 40% would simply restore it to the value it had relative to the rents that group were paying two decades ago. Sounds great, but you're spending a lot of public money, aren't you, Brendan? Well, only a little bit, Paul. So you're only spending $300 million um, because at the moment there aren't that many um, Australians who are renting. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Mm -hmm. that's a relatively small amount of money. It's not that different to what the ALP has recently proposed spending on super guarantee payments for paid parental leave. Mm -hmm. So if you think of it in comparison, that's an amount of money that could actually go quite a long way. And the other really important part about that is that at the moment, the reason why rent assistance has been falling in value is because it's indexed to inflation. Rents have been rising much faster. And if you don't do anything about that going forward, forward, then even more of those Australians that rent in future will be in poverty than today. And John, more more broadly, what are the policy implications of this finding that retirement incomes are more than adequate for the overwhelming bulk of us? Well, uh, one thing that it implies is that the current legislation um, that uh, provides that the super guarantee should go from nine and a half to 12 yep. should be unwound. Uh, if people are by and large going to have uh, retirement income sufficient to maintain a lifestyle in retirement, um, at least as high as what they had while they were working, there's no reason to require them to put even more of their money away. Uh, so that's our first conclusion. Can I just uh, ask you about that one? Why, why, why is the union movement so strong and loud in its calls for superannuation, compulsory super, and for the super guarantee to increase? So if you look at the history of superannuation, it very much came out of the accord. Um, It was um, partly born of the union movement. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's become a bit of an article of faith that more super is good. Indeed. And there's no question that some super is good. Uh, But I guess what this report is doing is saying, yeah, some super is good, but maybe we've got enough of a good thing. Indeed, I think our modelling has shown we do have more than enough already. So uh, we don't think there's any need for the super guarantee to go up from nine and a half to 12. Right. Um, It's it's not needed. Uh, it, of course, will mean that retire that incomes in, while people are working will be materially lower than they would be otherwise. Also means that pensions for existing pensioners will be lower. Why is that? Why is that? Well, because if the super guarantee goes up, then wages will go up by less. Right. If wages go up by less, then the pension goes up by less I because see. the pension is indexed I to see. wages. And that, of course, doesn't just affect people who retire in the future. It affects people who are already retired. Mm. Mm. And then the third reason why we don't think the super guarantee should go up is that it will not, in fact, um, save the budget any money if it goes up from 9.5 to 12, at least not for a very long time. Mm-hmm. It will cost the budget money. How does, it, how does it cost the budget money? Well, because when the super guarantee goes up, um, people uh, pay less tax on their incomes and instead they only pay tax on their super contributions and the tax rate on super contributions is much less than of the tax course. rate on incomes. So that's why the super guarantee going up means that the Commonwealth government will collect about $2 billion a year less in tax. Now, eventually, eventually, that will show up as 
lower age pensions mm-hmm. being paid, and mm-hmm. that will save the Commonwealth government some money. But um, the costs of superannuation at the moment, um, and since the system was started in 1992, are materially higher than the savings from the age pension. And the costs in terms of tax concessions will continue to be higher than the savings from the age pension uh, each and every year up until about 2060. 2060. 2060. So good news, Paul, you and I might just be alive (laughs) to see that day. Uh, But then, of course, there'll be 70 years worth of accumulated losses Mm -hmm. uh, on the Commonwealth budget. Uh, So by the time that those losses have been paid off and the entire system uh, is breaking even... um, Brendan probably won't be alive either. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is serious, Brendan. <laughs> and don't just take our word for it. These are, these are figures from the Treasury published in a paper in 2013 mm-hmm. that basically set all this out. Um, and so it shows that superannuation is not such a good deal for the budget as a lot of people think. And it wouldn't be unless we scale back those tax breaks by a very long way. Brendan, another policy implication uh, relates to the age pension. Now, you're recommending changes to the age pension taper rate. What is the taper rate and why should it change? So Australia has a means-tested age pension, which is to say that it's not universal, not everyone gets it. Instead, everyone um, essentially gets tested as to whether they are entitled based on their assets and their income. Now, most Australians do get at least some part pension. It's about 80% today. Um, and that ta- those taper rates essentially mean it's the rate at which the pension is withdrawn. So mm-hmm. you have there's a certain amount of income or assets you can have where you can still receive the full pension. And then there's a, a, a rate at which the pension is withdrawn. And it's basically at the moment uh, $3 a fortnight for every $1,000 of assets that you have. Right. Or roughly $7.80 a year for every um, $100 you have a pension. Mm-hmm. So... Um, what that means, that that's actually a relatively steep withdrawal rate on the age pension assets test. It um, it effectively implies tax rates of more than 100%, which is to say that if I put $100 in at age 40, over the course of my retirement, I will take less than $100 out in real terms. Right, right. Now, you know, we are not ones to say that effective marginal tax rates on, su- on savings have to be really low, but even 100% is probably a little bit too high. pretty high. Even for us. Um, And the pension also, this change will also do much more to help um, middle income earners in particular, lower middle income earners. What's the change you're proposing exactly? Oh, I'm sorry. So the change we're proposing is to go from $3 per $1,000 of assets Mm -hmm. back to $2.25. So it's partially reversing a change that was put through in 2015 when Scott Morrison was the Minister for Social Services. Um, that will cost about $750 million a year, um, which is less than half of what the super guarantee will cost. Noting, of course, the super guarantee doesn't save the budget in the long term either. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it will do more to help the uh, retirement incomes of low and middle income earners. Because one thing I think that's actually quite unappreciated as we go forward is that most people in future will be on a part pension. Um, so you can be on a relatively low income and you will get benefits from this for at least some of your life because, you know, your pension, your mm. income will be much higher and the thresholds for um, receiving the age pension uh, or being entitled to the age pension are indexed to inflation and wages will grow faster. And so in time, you'll only see 10 to 20% of people on the full pension. 
Okay, so easing the taper rate, I quite like that. But I couldn't help noticing a couple of other fairly controversial recommendations, Brendan. I think I'm right in saying you advocate increasing the retirement age from 67 to 70. Why do you want me to keep working until I'm 70? Well, you're still looking pretty sprightly, Paul, so I think you've got it in you, um, particularly in the game that we're in. But no, I think the reason why we're looking, we want the Productivity Commission to have a look at this is Mm -hmm. in our 2012 Game Changers report, uh, which we were looking at what are the things that are going to do the most to sort of boost economic growth, help with the budget and the like, this idea of increasing the age pension age and super retirement age to 70 years was at the top of the list. Indeed. Essentially because it would boost workforce participation amongst older Australians, therefore giving you big gains in GDP. Um, We know that people tend to retire at around that retirement age. It's a big driver of retirement choices. Um, It would save the budget a lot of money. You know, you're not paying out as much in pension. I think also on superannuation, if the preservation age goes to 70 as well, the age at which you can access your super, that will save the budget a lot of money in tax breaks. And the issue here is really, and it also is, I think, important for when you're thinking about intergenerational equity. We've got an ageing population. We're going to go from having somewhere between four and five Australians of working age for every person in retirement to about 2.7, according to the intergenerational report, Mm -hmm. in 40 years' time. And so, you know, that's going to be costly. And one of the ways we can make sure the system is sustainable is to make this kind of change. Now, it's not without challenges. The big one, of course, is that not everyone works in the kind of industry that we work in where, Mm. you know, it's relatively light on your bodies. And so people may find, you know, quite reasonably they might be struggling uh, to work to that age if they've been doing particularly hard jobs or if other things come up in their life. How How do we account for them? How do we look after them? Well, so what we're proposing that the Productivity Commission look at is essentially to look at the costs and benefits of the scale of the move in general. Um, budgetary, economic and social, Mm -hmm. and then to think about an early access regime um, for those that are aged over 60 and not able to work. Similar kind of hardship provisions already exist in super. And, you know, we have a uh, an activity test or an ability test built into the disability support pension. And you'd look at doing something similar um, for accessing the age pension or super before the age of 70. Okay, so you've got me working until 70, thank you very much, but you also want to drag the family home into the net here, do you not? Exactly what are you proposing with regard to owner-occupied housing? So at the moment, Paul, the age pension largely ignores the value of the family home, which is yes. the largest asset that most people have. Yes. Now, that at the moment, the home only includes the first $200,000 on average, uh, which means that you can have a home in Turak worth $5 million or a home in Bendigo worth 250000 and you're both considered to have a home that's worth $200,000 mm-hmm. for all the purposes of the age pension. Mm-hmm. That's clearly the wrong way around. So what we would like to do is to include the value of the home um, after, say, the first $500,000 in the age pension assets test. And this would make the pension much fairer because at the moment, quite a lot of the pension goes to those with very substantial means, particularly in housing. It's about half going to those with more than $500,000 in assets and, and about 20% going to those with more than a million. And, you know, we're probably not in a world anymore where we can treat the family home as being sacrosanct. When the home was worth two or three times your annual income, it didn't Mm -hmm. matter that much that you didn't draw down on it in retirement. 
and that we gave you the pension anyway. But when the home can be worth seven, eight, nine, ten times your annual income, as like it is in Sydney, that's a lot of housing equity that you're never touching during your retirement years. So I understand the fairness argument, but doesn't that make life difficult for people who are um, income poor but asset rich? That is a, a retired couple without a lot of cash but who are living in a rambling family home in an established leafy middle suburb of one of the big cities, Mm. how do we account for them? So in the same way, we've talked about this idea on the podcast a few times before over the last couple of years, but essentially the government's recently expanded what this thing called the pension loan scheme, which basically allows you to draw up to one and a half times the value of the maximum rate age pension um, and and by by essentially borrowing against the value of the home. So the government- the government takes the charge against your home. You know the debt builds up as you're as you're drawing the pension. There are protections in place to make sure it can't go too high because as soon as you are start to draw, then the value of your home becomes less. You get more age pension as well. You qualify for more, and it's essentially a way that government can. It's a government sponsored reverse mortgage. It mm. allows the government. Mm. It allows you to borrow to access the liquidity and the 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 um the equity in your home in order to fund a better retirement. Another way of thinking about this, Paul, is Mm. that the living standards of those retirees living in those homes will by definition be exactly the same. They will get exactly the same income that they're getting at the moment. They will live in the same house that they're living in the moment. Right. The only thing that will change is that their heirs and successors will get less of a bequest. Gotcha. And so when we essentially exempt owner-occupied housing from the age pension, we're essentially running an enormous taxpayer-funded inheritance scheme (laughs) that subsidises the inheritance of whoever's planning to inherit that house. Um, Now, I'm all in favour of spending taxpayer money ensuring that pensioners live in, you know, appropriate standards of living and live a very comfortable retirement. I'm rather less in favour of Australian taxpayers subsidising their children to get a better, bigger and better bequest. Uh, I can't think of any policy reason why that's a good idea. John, I want you to sum up for me. When we all go to Christmas and holiday barbecues over summer, after we've discussed house prices, we might get into the inevitable discussion about whether we'll have enough money to retire on. What is the main message you'd like us to take away from this report? So the first message is I'd suggest that you worry less. (laughs) The second message is uh, that you uh, think about the policy implications of that and in particular ask your local MP, why is it that you are making me save even more despite the fact I'm going to have a reasonably comfortable retirement anyway, why Mm -hmm. are you forcing me to live on less income today, which is when I'm probably going to need it over the course of my life. Mm -hmm. Uh, The third thing that I've learned personally out of this report is, you know, when you're 70, um, don't be afraid to spend some of the money you have. Yeah. Uh, This is not a game in which the person who has the most at the end wins. (laughs) Uh, The reality is that Um, when you're 70 and you have the ability to spend it uh, and you can get travel insurance and you're sprightly enough to get up and down the um, stairs of the uh, cruise liner, you should frankly take the cruise (laughs) Uh, because uh, 
the data suggests pretty strongly that when you get to the age of 85, you are going to struggle to spend it mm. um, in quite the same way. Mm. Uh, and also be reassured that by and large, government is going to pick up the tab for your health and your aged care. Mm-hmm. So rather than saving everything you've got at the age of 70 for a rainy day, uh, enjoy the sunshine uh, because when it starts raining, in fact, government will be paying for the umbrella, but you're not going to be able to enjoy the sunshine anymore. <laughs> uh, so those are some of the things to take away. Um, one other thing that we haven't spoken about is that, that there are other policy options here apart from just raising the super guarantee. Mm-hmm. We've got options around boosting rent assistance. We've got options around the age pension asset taper. Um People individually have already got options they can take themselves to work a little bit longer. If, you, if you're if you really worried about having more money in retirement, then nothing makes nearly as big a difference as simply working an extra three years. Mm-hmm. So you might want to think about that. Um, you don't have to retire <laughs> in the year that you qualify for the age pension. Uh, and then finally, um, I think it's brought home the importance of looking at how much the super system costs. Yes. So we, uh, of course, have published about this in our reports uh, on Super Sting um, uh, and so on. Uh, that's been picked up, uh, amongst other things, by work the Productivity Commission is doing into the superannuation, uh, the efficiency of, of the superannuation system. Mm. Uh, and if you either are encouraged by government or choose of your own volition uh, to move your super out of a fund which is charging relatively high fees and which has a track record of underperformance into a fund which has relatively low fees uh, and far fewer years of underperformance, that will make a very large difference to your retirement incomes. And it's an unfortunate fact of life uh, that the Productivity Commission has identified that those funds with particularly high fees tend to be those that are persistent underperformers, in theory, you'd expect that high fees led to better performance in practice. Mm. The the correlation seems to work the other way. So, uh, you know, those are a series of practical things that individuals can do uh, about their retirement. You know, think about how you want to spend it. Think about whether you, in fact, want to work a bit longer. Um, Think about um, whether you should be moving your super uh, into a fund today. which is remarkably easy to do on the Australian Tax Office's website when you go in and file your electronic tax return. You can also move your super to a fund that has um, lower fees mm-hmm. um, and a track record of reasonable performance. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things will make way more difference to your income and retirement uh, than uh, the government making you uh, save an extra 2.5% of your income uh, to put towards your retirement. Uh, and so as well, you might want to just kind of pen a quick letter to your local MP pointing that out. (laughs) John Daly, thank you. And Brendan Coates, thank you very much for your important work and for your expertise and your explanations today. And thank you to you, our listeners. If you would like to read the Money in Retirement report that we've been talking about today, or indeed any of John and Brendan's other reports and articles on retirement incomes, head to our website, grattan.edu.au. It's all there, live and free. You can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter, at Grattaninst, 
or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.